Hello, and welcome to a new podcast series featured on reproductive well-being. This podcast is a partnership between Power to Decide and the Reproductive Health National Training Center, with funding from the Office of Population Affairs and the Office on Women's Health. Its contents are solely the responsibility of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of OPA or HHS. In this series, we will be exploring the reproductive well-being framework, which strives to ensure that all people have the information, services, and support they need to have control over their bodies and to make their own decisions related to sexuality and reproduction throughout their lives. My name is Dr. Reagan McDonald Mosley, and I'm the CEO of Power to Decide. I have over 20 years of experience in this field, including as a practicing OBGYN with a dedication and commitment to reproductive health and justice. Today, we have with us Power to Decide's Chief of Staff, Dr. Jillian Seeley. Jillian has an MPH and a PhD in health science. She has deep experience in leading policy and systems work in a variety of settings, including schools and communities, as well as expertise in the social determinants of health. She has worked at the local, regional, and national level and has built scaling and sustainability strategies for all these settings. In the first episode on reproductive well-being, we introduced the framework. In the second episode, we took a deeper dive into the four pillars that hold up this framework, autonomy, control, respect, and systems of support. In this episode, we're going to discuss the vision for reproductive well-being moving forward. So let's dive in. So in the broader spaces where people are contending with and prioritizing the enormous health issues that this nation is currently facing, do you think that policymakers, healthcare industry leaders, and advocates are adequately prioritizing reproductive health equity? I think that's a really important question. I think, for instance, that what COVID has shown us um, is really it's laid bare the health disparities that folks are feeling, but not just um, in you know the healthcare setting, but it's specifically in accessing sexual and reproductive health services. But let's look even pre-COVID. And what we know is that a, a system of care, especially in healthcare, is fragmented, right? Too often things like contraceptives, uh, preconception care are not typically offered in an integrated part of women's primary health care, especially in communities of color. And so all too often reproductive health services. So, for instance, uh, preventive screenings and testing, pregnancy prevention, contraceptive care, preconception care are not addressed by the same provider or even within the same physical setting. Uh, fractured care often means that people must visit multiple health care providers um, and also seek out health information from multiple sources to access optimal care. And when you think of those that are uninsured or underinsured, uh, they're more likely to be disengaged from the healthcare system. And so to your question, I think, you know, this really involves a broad range of folks um, as it relates to making sure that people have reproductive well-being. Um, this would include policymakers, healthcare systems, healthcare industry, and advocates, which are all part of building a system of support and transforming the culture to one that enables people to access the support they need to achieve their goals. Uh, this will, meet, will mean that we need to change the narrative. We need to change practices for women's health and health more broadly, both at the local, regional, and state level. Uh, we'll need to align our approaches as we um, you know, change practice to meet the needs of people in a more seamless and responsive way. So in addition to um, making care more concentrated or rather making care more streamlined, 
if reproductive well-being were fully incorporated at the community level, what would sexual and reproductive health look like across the lifespan for people in that community? That would mean that people, regardless of social structure, um, are not disadvantaged when they're uh, seeking to achieve optimal health. It would mean that we would break down the silos in the healthcare system and see sexual and reproductive health as really part of overall healthcare. It would mean that to achieve health equity, for instance, in this area, that we would acknowledge that for some groups, um, they've been disproportionately affected by poor health outcomes, including uh, in maternal and infant health. Um, And what that would mean is that we would need to put a system of support in place to address and rectify this. Uh, It would also mean that for some, it wouldn't just be relegated to individual choice or a random occurrence, but really to to look and acknowledge systemic barriers that affect a person's person achieving reproductive well-being. And finally, it would mean that people, when they enter the healthcare setting and system, would be respected by being seen and heard, that they would have autonomy to make their own decisions about their sexual and reproductive health, and that they would be in control of their decision-making power, um, as well as, again, that system of support that supports their decisions. That's very helpful. You know, as we discussed in our last discussion, we, ha- we have a long way to go to get to the point where reproductive well-being is a reality, but that it, it's feasible and obtainable. If you could uh, rank, right, or prioritize the areas where you would sort of make the greatest impact for reproductive well-being, if you had a magic wand, right, um, to ensure that reproductive well-being was fully inculcated in our communities and culture, where would you prioritize and where would you act first? To be honest, when we uh, engaged those 40 national organizations, I think we were all, uh, you know, in the same thinking that one of the first and foremost places that we wanted to adopt reproductive well-being to develop a framework and to engage to get us on the path of, again, uh, something that might seem aspirational, but is definitely um, totally doable, is really looking at providers and the healthcare system as the first place to start. And when I use the word healthcare providers, I use that term to not just include clinicians, but also folks like community health workers, doulas, home visiting nurses, as well as social service providers and areas where people are being touched by health and social systems. And the goal was really to transform the way in which these sectors, um, at the institutional and the practice level, communicate with people to support their reproductive well-being. And so we knew that they had to be a paradigm shift um, in the system of support and the way that we were centering patient care. And again, we knew that one of the places that we would start would be at the healthcare and provider level, but we also knew that should we uh, help them think about how they would shift their practice to include the tenets of reproductive well-being, we also knew that then this would trickle down to patient experience as well. Additionally, uh, we also understood that others needed to be a part of this work and a part of this conversation, uh, including communities, policymakers, faith-based organizations, um, youth-centered organizations, anywhere where people were touched um, by, you know, 
a system, we knew that they also needed to be, um, you know, part of the conversation. So I would say, um, you know, touching the healthcare system, but knowing full well that those were not the individuals or the systems that needed to be touched only um, is one of the things that we discussed. So you mentioned the community level needing to be an important component of this, right, to make this a reality for all. What tools do you think are needed to support reproductive well-being at the community level? I think there are a few tools that communities need to make reproductive well-being successful. And while we establish the national um, work around reproductive well-being first, we know that real change happens locally, right? And in fact, we know this intimately because eight of the communities that we're currently working with have demonstrated that. So one of the things we know is that communities want, wanted and need a platform to be able to do collective impact work, uh, which is often not easy. Um, and they also want to be part of a larger collective. People don't want to think that only that they alone are doing this in their community, that there are others also that are being um, that are moving towards this movement of reproductive well-being. And so this allows for the spread and scale and the sharing of ideas. Um, we know at Power to Decide as a national organization uh, that community communities themselves are the best position to identify and to implement the most effective strategies to support reproductive well-being. And so this is one of the reasons early on in the work that we did, in addition to convening those 40 national organizations, uh, we also convened 50 community experts. And these experts included practitioners, there were advocates, there were researchers to aggregate best practices, um, evidence-based strategies and lessons learned um, and then what we did is we took all these and created a reproductive well-being place-based toolkit to promote reproductive well-being um, at the local level, understanding that these strategies would have to be customized because, again, communities are very different. The toolkit um, included four main areas of action that we collectively, just based on those experts who obviously have expertise working at the community level um, that we knew would help build that local system of support for reproductive well-being. Um, and these included uh, health equity, policy, education and communication, and healthcare delivery. Our communities also needed support and technical assistance to be able to um, move reproductive well-being from a theory into practice. And also, I'll say finally that it doesn't hurt if funding is available to help communities to um, put the pillars of reproductive well-being into practice. I think often we ask communities to, um, you know, implement policies, procedures, and practices, but without the necessary funding for them to not only implement, but for it to be sustainable. We don't, you know, as we talk about reproductive well-being, we don't want it to just take hold for you know the next year or two, we want this to be integrated into the system of care that communities are providing. Yes, and funding is essential for these communities to be able to prioritize the specific areas and gaps that they have identified for themselves, right, as sort of their need locally. You know, as we know, narrative change doesn't happen overnight. What do you think it will take and who needs to be involved for reproductive well-being to take hold and for this paradigm shift to occur in terms of a long lasting change? And how can reproductive well-being move from an idea to a practiced reality? 
I think there are many folks that need to be involved in this. I, I think back to the social determinants of health and we think about the barriers to care and we understand that there's just not just one constraint that, for instance, a family might be experiencing as they access the healthcare system uh, and look at reproductive well-being. And so with that in mind, knowing that um, the issues that folks face are multifaceted, it's going to take um, us having a wide collaborative collaborative to be able to address this. Um, and as I mentioned before, um, you know, the work that we've done, it took a collective effort to, again, to look at what is happening in the landscape and then to think about how we rectify that and how we think about uh, what a paradigm shift might look like. Um, so it's definitely an opportune time to include, um, and we have done that, other movements as well as as well as we continue to do this work. Um, you know, again, when we started this work, we knew that we needed to start with healthcare and social service providers, but it can't stop there. Uh, we know that there are various levers that need to be pulled to ensure that reproductive well-being, including in place our place-based work, um, need to be involved. Uh, we need to look at supportive policies of reproductive well-being, um, which would include policymakers and advocates. Um, also, you know, we talk about policymakers, and I think oftentimes people think about big P policy, but communities can also be involved in small P policies, whether that's, um, you know, having organizations sign on to consensus statements, um, to developing guiding principles about what reproductive well-being might look like. So really helping communities to see what power they have as it relates to policy are, are some of the things that we need to be doing as well. You know, also thinking that uh, we want to make sure that as we talk about patient-centered care and the and the uh, health care that we're providing, that it's culturally responsive and linguistically appropriate, uh, which is very, very key. We heard that over and over again, that this is vital to making sure that reproductive well-being is achieved. And it will take all of us ensuring that all people have equitable access um, to information, services, systems, and support that they need to be able to control their bodies, to make their own decisions related to sexual and reproduction uh, throughout their lives. I think the other thing, uh, as we look um, as individuals, and I, I know that we're, you know, talking to folks who are in the healthcare setting and, and you know, clinicians and non-clinicians alike, um, to think about what do they bring to this work, right? What experiences do you bring to this work? What expertise do you bring to this work? Um, what keeps you doing this work, right? Um, as we know, as we talk, when we talk to providers, we heard that many of them embrace the tenets of reproductive well-being. Definitely wanted to see that their patients um, were given, you know, the optimal health care, but that there were systems in place, whether that's billing or other systems that prevented them from doing it. So really understanding what keeps um, providers doing this work and wanting to make sure that their um, patients have reproductive well-being. And then finally, I think also asking, you know, what values um, do you hold in this work, right? Because I think that's something that's also important as we look at communities, as we look at the healthcare system uh, to ensuring that reproductive well-being is achieved for all people. That's amazing. You talked about policy, right? Both the big P and the little P. And I feel like we could have like a whole nother podcast episode just on that. But in thinking about, you know, some of the big P policy things that folks can be considering in their own communities or 
you know, supporting policies for comprehensive and evidence-based sexual health education, policies that support contraceptive access, like having 12-month supply of contraceptives at a time, having uh, telehealth policies that support access to contraception, pharmacists prescribing policies to support maternal health, Medicaid coverage for 12 months after delivery, support for mental health services. I mean, the list could go on and on and on, but those are some of the things to lift up. And then also in individual organizations, making sure that your policies do not inhibit someone from getting access to the full scope of contraceptive methods, that you have appointments and policies that allow people to come in for removals the same as they can for insertions for LARC devices, for example, um, policies that allow for and encourage um, reproductive decision-making screening at all types of visits, including at primary care and specialty services. Um, so these are some of the things that, that folks can be considering, both the big P policies in their state or in their communities, as well as the, the little P policies in their own institutions and really interrogating their level of support for reproductive well-being. It's not just going to be incumbent on the healthcare system to be a part of this as well. You know, if you're looking at transportation um, and folks not having transportation to get to a doctor's office or a healthcare system, um, a healthcare setting to be able to access contraception or the care that they need, like that's really incumbent on people being, you know, being able to do that. Um, and to your point, looking at organizationally, are you giving, you know, people time to be able to go to their to their appointments, um, to be able to access the system. So again, we might have started with the healthcare system and and um, with providers wanting to um, make sure that the tenets of reproductive reproductive well-being are a part of their the work that they do, but it doesn't doesn't just stop there. It really is incumbent on all of us to be a part of this collective work. I love this. I think this is such a, a critical framework, and I, I wish that something like this had been in place during my medical training, but I'm so grateful to be a part of the work that we're doing to disseminate this um, across the ecosystem and envisioning a world where all people feel seen and understood, where they, people feel like they have the freedom and safety to experience their sexuality and have autonomy over their bodies, and that they can control um, and receive access to all of the information and options available. And lastly, and so importantly, as you've laid out, that the systems are there to support people's decisions and ensure that they can have the autonomy and feel seen and heard. Um, it's a it's a really powerful framework, and I'm um, hopeful for the future where we can make this a reality for more people. There's nothing that prevents us from, and in fact, we've talked about this, um, you know, looking at schools of public health and schools of medicine and schools of nursing to really um, institutionalize the tenets of reproductive well-being for early professionals who are entering this space um, so that they do have um, these tenets that they hold dear, that they then are going to incorporate into their practice um, and not just their practice individually, but the institutions that they work from. Right. Um, I, I think back to one resident that we heard from who said, like, you know, the tenets of reproductive well-being are what I hold there as a young resident. But when I went into the hospital setting, the, it was a total contrast um, to what I felt I needed to give to my patients. And as a young resident, there's a rub about being able to go into an institution um, that is, you know, many years old and trying to institute 
um, the tenets of reproductive well-being. So I think there is a push-pull there, um, as was evident based on this resident story. And, and so I don't think there's anything that that um, prevents us and, in fact, encourages us to really look at young professionals um, as they're entering this space um, to arm them with the tenets of reproductive well-being. I think that's right. And building a, a cadre of the next generation of providers for whom this is just a part of how we practice and how we see the world and an expectation for patients and communities. I love that. Anything else that, that I haven't asked you that you want to say about sort of the future of reproductive well-being and how to make this a reality for all? I think reproductive well-being, I, I will tell you, having you know started this in 2017, um, as you know, people like to say it was a twinkle in our eye, right? Again, it was very aspirational, but we knew that it was doable. And being able to go out and do some focus grouping with you know, hundreds of people, uh, we definitely saw that people resonated and gravitated towards reproductive well-being. It's something that they wanted, that they wanted to see both at the patient level and at the provider level. And as we talked about, now we're seeing it at the community level. So clearly we've seen the seeds that we're, we have planted take root um, and we're hoping to see this, you know, blossom even further into more communities. Um, I will say, you know, I'm, I'm often heartened when I hear folks both on social media or in the media say like reproductive well-being. It's not part of the overall vernacular yet, but we're, we're seeing inklings of people using that phrase. And so we want to hear more of it, but we also want people not just to talk about it, but to make sure that they're institutionalizing it um, all over, not just in healthcare settings, but in where people are touched um, by systems and to create those systems of support that it becomes the expectation of those seeking those services that reproductive well-being will be and the tenets of reproductive well-being will be something that they experience. Thank you so much, Jillian. This has been a really powerful discussion. I want to just remind everyone of what the pillars are for reproductive well-being. They are respect, autonomy, control, and systems of support. And I want to encourage you to think about um, what it would look like in your community if everyone was working towards reproductive well-being and what you need to get there um, and what you or your organization can commit to in order to advance reproductive well-being in your own community. Thank you so much, Jillian, again, for this informative and amazing and powerful discussion. It's been so great to speak with you. To follow the work of Jillian, follow her at, at Tweet for a Cause. That's at TWT for the number four, a cause on Twitter. And you can follow me at, at Dr. Reagan on Twitter. And please stay connected with Power to Decide by following at Power to Decide on all platforms. This podcast was produced as a partnership between Power to Decide and the Reproductive National Health Training Center. And you can learn more at rhntc.org. <laughs>